Well, I still remember sitting in my professor's small office. The desk was was littered with papers. There were there were just stacks and stacks of documents sitting on the desk, on the floor. There were there were books everywhere. It reflected the kind of teacher that had his hands in everything, but really didn't seem to have time to finish much of anything. Uh, He was a real heavyweight, and I'll get to that in a minute. But there were two requests that came that day. One of them was big. One of them was small. One of them was granted. And one of them was denied. As I said, he was, he was a heavyweight in the uh, seminary, in the professorial world. Uh, his textbook would have been a textbook that all students at Gordon-Conwell Theological Seminary, Dallas, Denver, Fuller, Moody, all of them would have had at one point. He also had a side hustle of traveling the world and photographing some of the most ancient Greek manuscripts in the highest resolution so that they could be preserved for generations and generations to come. No big deal, right? Well, at the time that I sat in his office, I was a third-year seminary student, and I was also leading something called a spiritual formation group that was designed to help build a build positive social and spiritual connections with other people that you were going through this seminary experience with to give them a more than just an academic foundation, but also to give them a spiritual foundation that they could rely on as they entered into the world of, of academic teaching or, or ministry. Whatever was coming next, this was designed to prepare them and give them a network that they could rely on and lean into. Well, because it was my third year in seminary, and often leaders started out in their first year in seminary, I had a little bit of an advantage. I knew the system. I knew the seminary. I knew some of the resources. And that gave me the opportunity to uh, ask different professors to come in, maybe for a lunch with, with the guys, and just connect with them a little bit and bring some positive encouragement, maybe some spiritual direction. So I took as much advantage of that as I could, and that's why I sat down in his office to ask him if he would come and share some words of encouragement with the people, with the guys in my spiritual formation group. And he said yes. And then a surprise request came from him. How do you feel about four semester going and interning with me and taking some of these, being a part of this process to photograph some of these ancient Greek manuscripts. Now, there must have been a mistake because I intentionally did not take his 101 class because I heard it was the hardest class on campus. And I was, you know, I was known more for mischief in my Greek class than my ability to conjugate verbs. At the same time, it was one of these rare lifetime, unique opportunities. And I said, I said, no. I said, no. Now, I have thought about that a lot. Not, I have never regretted that decision. I've never regretted that decision. But I have thought back to that opportunity many times throughout my life, trying to understand the why behind it and the reasoning And as I've reflected, and this is something that I don't like to admit about myself, but I tend to be, maybe you feel like it, like me as well, but I I tend to be someone who you might describe as risk-averse. Risk-averse. 
I've always kind of thought, well, the, the way for me is to go the normal path. You know, graduate from high school, go to college, maybe pick up a master's, get married, have exactly 2.5 kids. The normal road. That was what I was kind of drawn to. But I have to wonder. I have to wonder if sometimes being risk-averse isn't the riskiest option of all. Well, if this is your first time joining us, we, we are now in our last week of uh, this part of the series, Kingdom Come When God Does a New Thing. And over the past few weeks, we've been spending some time exploring the beginning chapters of the Gospel of Mark, really the beginning months and weeks of Jesus' ministry to try to explore and discover what are the kind of things that happen when God does a new thing. And we have learned that when God does a new thing, he often brings a message God will often bring change or an invitation to change. And sometimes what God does is he also, he also brings healing. God also brings healing. But in the last message of this series, I want to ask, could God's new thing pass by the heart that is too preoccupied by what's normal? Could God's new thing pass by the heart that is too preoccupied by what's normal? Or could strange and different be the most life-giving opportunity that could come our way? And if the cost is great, if the cost is great, what could keep us on the different way? What could keep us on that different way? Well, it turns out that we aren't the first people to experience the tension between different and, and normal, uh, risky and, and safe. And Jesus experienced some of that tension in a surprising conflict with his family himself. And that's what we're gonna, going to dig into as we, look into the, as we look into the third chapter of the Gospel of Mark, where we're going to find that Mark presenting a story about Jesus that will help us navigate the inevitable decisions that we have, that we all face ahead. So our story picks up in Mark chapter 3, verse 13, with the calling of Jesus' disciples. And this is what Mark says. Jesus went up on a mountainside and called to him those, who, those, who, those he wanted, and they came to him. He appointed 12 that they might be with him and that, that he might send them out to preach and to have authority to drive out demons. These are the twelve he appointed. Simon, to whom he gave the name Peter, James, son of Zebedee, and his brother John, to whom he gave the name Boanerges, and, which means sons of thunder, Andrew, Philip, Bartholomew, Matthew, Thomas, James, son of Alphaeus, Thaddeus, Simon the Zealot, and Judas Iscariot, who betrayed him. Well, we're not in the thick of the action yet, but what we just read is it's still important because it sets a little bit of a foundation for what's about to happen. Last week, we explored a, an episode in, in the Gospel of Mark where, where a, a leper approaches Jesus and asks him to be healed. And we found that, that Jesus, he wants to heal the leper. 
he also is hesitant because he knows that if he heals the leper, news is going to get out and it's going to make it difficult for him to preach, and which is what he, which was what he was commissioned to do because Jesus, he cared very much about physical healing, but he was also passionate about whole person healing. He was passionate about whole person healing, and, and Jesus was right. The leper, he goes against Jesus' wishes, and he tells uh, everybody what happened. It becomes a big public thing, and, and Mark tells us that Jesus is no longer able to go into the towns and into the synagogues and teach there, which is what he really wanted to do, and he was forced out into the countryside for the most part to do his teaching. Now, he's going to come into houses and We'll see that he does that in the next scene. But for the most part, this kind of diverts Jesus' ministry. At the same time, Jesus' following, it's growing. It's getting bigger. So Jesus handpicks 12, which no doubt have some symbolism behind it, the symbolism of the 12 tribes of Israel, so that he can multiply the same work he is doing. He commissions them, uh, Mark says, to preach and to cast out demons, and no doubt also to heal, because we see that the disciples will do that later as he sends them out, even though Mark doesn't say it here in this text. But did you notice that there is one more element to this special calling? There's one more element, and it's important. Mark tells us that Jesus appointed them, he called them, that they might be with him. Jesus didn't just call to do. Jesus called so that they might belong. In what ways have, uh, has an invitation to do something in your life, what ways has that turned into also an invitation to belong to someone or, or to something? Maybe you tried out for us a sport in college, uh, to stretch yourself physically, whatever the reasons were, maybe you were a part of a sport and, and you ended up not just becoming a, a member or a participant in an activity, but you became a part of a team in high school or in college. And because of your involvement in that, even though you have been far removed from college for some of you or high school, you still root for that team because that logo or that mascot, that letter, means something to you. You went out to do something, but you became a part of something. Or perhaps you received some invitation to help somebody personally who was going through a difficult time. And um, initially, it was just an acquaintance, and you came alongside of them to meet some need. But as you spent more time with them, that acquaintance turned into a friend, and that that uh, maybe distant connection turned into a, a friendship, something more meaningful, something more life-giving. Or maybe you decided to join a, a church's service project, like, like the upcoming trip to West Virginia or something like Eggfest, and you were just kind of an attender, somebody on the fringe, but getting involved with people, spending time with them and really connected, connecting with them uh, made you a part of the community in a deeper way. Something like the like the trips to Namibia that Christ Church used to do in the past uh, did for so many people here. In a similar way, God invites us, when God invites us to do a thing, he doesn't just invite us to become a part of the thing that he is doing. He invites us to become a part 
of him. He invites us to become a part of him. Now that's important as we set the stage for the action because that idea, it's about to be tested. Look at how Mark continues. Then Jesus entered a house and again a crowd gathered so that he and his disciples were were not even able to eat. When his family heard about this, they went to take charge of him for they said, he is out of his mind. Well, last week we took a I'll call it a 10,000-foot view of of the Gospel of Mark. And although we don't know a lot about the setting and the situation which Mark is writing into, uh, there are some important clues that give us some hints, and and it does tell us more than we might imagine on on the surface. Most people today think that Mark wrote first, and that Matthew and Luke, which are similar renditions or similar Gospels, they used Mark and they used other sources as they crafted their own Gospel. And Mark probably wrote in the 50s or the 60s, about 20 to 30 years after Jesus ascended. Some of the key words that Mark uses that are distinct from Luke and Matthew are hints that he may have been writing to a distinctly Roman audience. Some of the places that he mentioned that Romans would have known and or maybe people living in Jerusalem, they, they wouldn't have known. They, they give us these kinds of hints. Now, chances are that Mark was not simply writing to preserve Jesus' story, but as important as that is. But the unique character of Mark's gospel suggests that he wrote to address a specific question. A specific question. Under the threat of persecution, many Christians in Rome in the 50s and the 60s think of Nero Uh, emperors and leaders who were very hostile to the Christian faith. Under that kind of threat, many Christians who had claimed Jesus were renouncing their faith. They were renouncing their faith. When those Christians came back, and some of them did, to the community that they renounced and to the, the Lord that they renounced, what was the community supposed to do? What was the community supposed to do? That may be the central question that Mark is trying to address. And that may also explain why of all of the Gospels, Mark portrays the disciples as the most flawed, with the most foibles and and the most, uh, it's not, in in the most unflattering way. We'll put it, we'll put it that way. Even at the very end of the book, the book ends in one of the most, the most, in the strangest way. Disciples encounter an angel at the tomb, and the angel says to share the news that Jesus has been risen, and we end with those disciples running away, running away scared. It's, it's not a flattering picture, and that may also be kind of what we're encountering in this scene, in this situation with Jesus' family, too. Now, as strange as this might sound, Mark's gospel may have been intended initially to frustrate the first readers. To frustrate the first readers. Imagine a Christian in Rome listening to this gospel for the first time. We get glimpses of the disciples whom that Christian would have known as the leaders of the church, pillars in the church. We get glimpses of 
of the family of Jesus, including faith-filled figures like Mary and another future leader of the church in Jesus' brother James. But we only get a piece of the puzzle. Yeah, the cow one was the only one I could find this morning. We only get a piece of the puzzle. And I can imagine, I can imagine someone, a Christian, saying, That's not the whole story, Mark. That's not the whole story. You know, if Mark had a response or if he heard that response and had the ability to, re- to respond based upon what we know about the gospel, and by the way, based upon what we know about Mark's personal story of having made mistakes himself, maybe we'll get into that another time. Chances are Mark would have responded by saying, that's exactly the point. It's not the whole story. It's not the end of the story. And it's not the end of the story for you. And it's not the end of the story for your friends either. So here we have a piece of the story, part of the story to make a bigger point. Uh, Yes, Mary was faithful. She trusted God at the very beginning and she walked along the disciples And she was even there present at Jesus' death. But couldn't even a mother full of faith and understanding God's full purposes look at a situation with busy crowds where her son wasn't eating and and wonder if, if this hasn't gone too far? And couldn't brothers whose father had passed away and who were now responsible for taking care of the family and whose older brother was out doing this ministry thing, couldn't they be concerned that all this attention that he was gathering to himself could turn back to them in the form of negative attention, attention that they didn't want. And if that was a suspicion of the brothers early on, it turns out that their suspicions were right. Let's look at how Mark continues. And the teachers of the law who came down from Jerusalem said, he is possessed by Beelzebub, which is a Hebrew word meaning Baal of the flies, Lord of the flies. By the prince of demons, he is driving out demons. And so Jesus called them over to him and began to speak to them in parables. How can Satan drive out Satan? If a kingdom is divided against itself, the kingdom it cannot stand. If a house is divided against itself... That house cannot stand. And then if Satan opposes himself and is divided, he cannot stand. His end has come. In fact, no one can enter a strong man's house without first tying him up. Then he can plunder the strong man's house. Truly, I tell you, people can be forgiven all their sins and every slander they utter. But whoever blasphemes against the Holy Spirit will never be forgiven. They're guilty of an eternal sin. He said this because they were saying he has an impure spirit. Well, Jesus, he doesn't pull any punches here, does he? He makes quick work of the teachers by exposing their logical problem, but then he doesn't stop there. This, this, what you're doing here, it's dangerous. 
It's dangerous, Jesus is saying. When someone falsely ascribes the good work of God to the devil, they are excluding themselves from, from the very power that forgives them. That's why Jesus dubs this the blasphemy of the Holy Spirit. The blasphemy of the Holy Spirit. That claiming God's work to be the devil's work is unforgivable. Not because there's something wrong that can't be forgiven, but because, because we cut ourselves off from the very power that does forgive us. We deny forgiveness in that sense. But let's not, let's not lose sight of the bigger picture here, what's going on on a, a higher level, uh, what's going on in the grander scheme of thing, things. First of all, Jesus, he calls his disciples to be with him. Uh, then secondly, Jesus' family hears about the strenuous activity and all the attention that Jesus is giving, and they, and, and they approach him and they call him to come home, come back. And some, some of them saying at least that he's lost his mind. And then teachers, they come from Jerusalem, and, and they say that he's evil, a fraud, uh, doing miracles um, by someone else, or, or someone has taken possession of him. Do you see what's happening here? The famous author C.S. Lewis, he, he put this logical problem, which really predates Lewis, but for a modern audience, he, he put it in pretty simple terms. And he called it the trilemma, or it has been since called the trilemma. Who is Jesus? He's either Lord. He's a liar, kind of what the teachers from Jerusalem were saying, or he's a lunatic. He's mad with some from his family apparently, were claiming Lord, liar, or lunatic, the trilemma. Uh, Lewis kind of puts this in a, a fresh way for children in his, in his book, The Chronicles of Narnia. If you aren't familiar with the story, there are four siblings, and the two youngest, Edward and Lucy, they discover a, a cupboard that leads to a, a magical, fantastical world called Narnia. Lucy discovers it first. She then takes her older brother, who's the... Uh, um, the third oldest, Edward, into the land, and they come out. And Lucy tells the older siblings about this, but Edward lies and says she's making things up. And, and suddenly her older siblings are worried that she's lost her mind. Well, they're staying with the professor, and they approach the professor and express their concern about Lucy. And here's what the professor says. Logic, said the professor, half to himself. Why don't they teach logic at school anymore? There are only three possibilities. Either your sister is telling lies, or she's mad, or she is telling the truth. Well, you know she doesn't tell lies, and it's obvious that she's not mad for the moment then. And unless any further evidence turns up, we must assume that she is telling the truth. And on one level, that's kind of what Mark's story is about. Jesus wields logic to unlock the lie that is pressed against him. But even more than that, we can clearly see the way that he wields logic clearly proves that he's, that insanity charges aren't going to stick on Jesus either. But chances are, whether Jesus was Lord, liar, or lunatic was probably not the question that was facing Mark's readers the most. They had probably already made their mind up about that. There's a question behind the question. And that question is, 
Will everyone else look at us as liars or lunatics? If we follow Jesus, will they look at us in the same way too? Well, in the face of pressure or even abnormal or the strange, um, and we can be too afraid to continue with different when normal is safe and known, can't we? Not many of us have faced physical persecution. But who hasn't been confronted with a decision involving some kind of risk? Have you ever wanted to do something positive um, that didn't fit with your parents' expectation? Or have you ever wanted to do something that was on the fringe of the expectations of society? Often when we are offered life-giving, once-in-a-lifetime opportunities, we cannot take our reputations with us. We can't take our reputations with us. At the same time, if we let that lead us, we can also miss, we can also miss what's at the other end. The picture in this scene that Mark leaves us with, is it's really vivid. We'll come to that in a minute. But let me just describe the setting. You have people filling this house to capacity. And you have people spreading outside of the house. There's so many people so crowded together that when Jesus' family, they come to Capernaum from, Capernaum, Capernaum from Nazareth, they can't get in. So they send the message that they're here, and it's being passed along through the crowd, one by one, hey, Jesus' family is here. Jesus' family is here. Hey, his family want him to come out. And it finally makes its way through the crowd to the house and in the house. And the language that Mark uses makes it very clear. Jesus and his disciples are on the inside, and he uses this word explicitly, and his family, they are on the outside. And after Jesus responds, we don't know what happens. Mark kind of leaves us frozen in this moment. Maybe something good happens. Maybe something bad happens. We don't really know. Does the family disappear after that? Does he go out afterwards after things have settled down to engage with him? We don't know. But Mark wants us to freeze and center on this moment, especially because of what Jesus is about to say, something remarkable that Jesus is about to say. And this is how Mark concludes. And Jesus' mother and brothers arrived, standing Outside, they sent someone in to call him. A crowd was sitting around him, and they told him, Your mother and brothers are outside looking for you. Who are my mother and my brothers, he asked. You can imagine confused looks going around after Jesus said something like that. Then he looked at those seated in the circle around him, and he said, Here are my mother Here are my mother." And my brothers, whoever does God's will is my brother and sister and mother. And now in this moment, Jesus is not closing the door on his biological family. And in this moment, Jesus' biological family, the door is not, it's not closed for them either. But what Jesus does is he redefines what it means to be a family. He redefines it. And those he called to do what he does and be with him, did you notice that? He 
he draws them in a little bit closer. He invites them to belong. So the answer on everyone's mind, people listening to Mark's gospel for the first time, is yes, when God does a new thing, we might lose things. When God does a new thing, we might lose things. For some of us here, that could be mean that could mean losing a close relationship. Uh, for others of us here who have certain ambitions and aspirations, that could mean losing an opportunity in an organization or losing an opportunity at work. For others of us who have carefully curated our reputation in society or in whatever circles we're in, it could mean losing that. But when God does a new thing, we have a chance to gain something as well. He couldn't have just been a good teacher. If 50% of what he said was sayings about himself, and those sayings were false, with all due respect to people who, who view Jesus as just a good teacher, he couldn't have just been that if, his, if, his, if what he taught about himself was false. It couldn't have just been that. And everything we have read about him demonstrates that he had his wits about him. Is there really anyone else in history like this man? Is there, any, is there really anyone else in history like this Jesus? And if so, what does this invitation mean? It's not just a chance for us to go on a trip or an interesting life experience. It's the chance for us to belong, to take on a new identity, to be a part of God's family. And when an opportunity like that comes, it is not something that we want to miss. When God does a new thing, he presents us with costly but worthy opportunities to come closer to him. Costly but worthy opportunities to come closer to him. So what costly step might God be prompting you to take today? Maybe you sense that God might be prodding you to positively share about your journey with Jesus at a lunch table with, your, with some of your coworkers who have been struggling. You've heard some of your coworkers talk about people of faith and it hasn't always been good. And maybe you've... Uh, also heard, you're also concerned about navigating the negative witness of many others, and you're afraid that people will think that you are like them. And yet, how might you submit your, for yourself your identity in him if you took a risk and, and put yourself out there? What kind of doors might open to experience the joy of the unexpected if you, if you were in a position to more freely share your faith? Maybe you're a parent feeling the pull of talking about your faith more with your children. At the same time, there's a, a part of you that's, that, that pushes back. Uh, maybe, you, maybe you feel like it would be, sh you're afraid that it would shatter that, the tough image that you have. Or maybe you just feel unqualified or you, you don't feel good enough in a situation like that. 
Could, look, could simply being honest about your, your journey of faith uh, with all of its vulnerabilities not only open the door for your kids to see an honest walk with God, but also help you to walk with God more honestly, being the broken, imperfect, but accepted and loved person that you are. Or maybe you're on the edge. Maybe you're on the edge of faith, or maybe you're just kind of on the edge of on the edge of involvement in community with too many things that are stretching for your attention. Household chores, taxes, hobbies. You could saying yes to you know, something as simple as a trip in, in August or or a service opportunity be a way of saying yes to Jesus by confronting our comfort zones. Joining a group or, or serving in some other capacity, do the same thing. When God does a new thing, He doesn't always do an easy thing. But His promise is that we do not have to be alone. His invitation is to be closer, His invitation is to be family, His invitation is to be known. And His Son Jesus will walk through us, whatever. Whatever new and scary thing might be coming our way so that we can know his fullness and not miss out on the once-in-a-lifetime opportunity to be by his side. Let's pray. Father, I pray, Lord, that... um, as I pray for us, I pray for, I pray for myself. And I pray, Lord, that my heart might remain soft to whatever you're doing, wherever you're going, Lord. And that, Lord, we would not forsake the opportunity to be faithful and present with you, Lord. May we not put our treasure in other things, May you give us the eyes to see where you're moving, when you're moving, and give us the heart to be faithful, to follow in your footsteps, to become more like you, and ultimately to be closer to the one who loves us unconditionally, knows us without fault or flaw, and has forgiven us of all we've done. In Jesus' name, amen.